What do a burning bush, a rock that from it springs water, manna from heaven, a towering light, a cloud, and a fig tree have in common? This isn't a riddle to keep you puzzled for the next few minutes. I'll tell you, they're all physical. They're all material. They all have something we can taste, we can touch, we can see, we can smell. That's the characteristics that these things share in common. And there's something very important about that for us as people who follow God. Now, I propose that to you to consider because we live in a world that less and less identifies as religious. And many of you have heard or yourself maybe experienced this feeling of, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Because religion has a lot of hang-ups, you know. It's got rules. And really, didn't Jesus just say, come and follow me and you'll be okay? Well, if we take a really selfish glance at the gospel and don't want to actually read the whole thing, then you might find a few things to support that idea. But Jesus Christ was a human being with flesh. Jesus Christ lived in the world, and Jesus Christ experienced a religion, the Jewish religion. He lived in that religion the entirety of his life. And so Jesus, who was part of that religious life, Jesus who took on flesh, Jesus who speaks very often in parables that involve things you can taste, touch, see, and smell, seems to put a high value on the physical. And well, brothers and sisters, that's the first criticism that I think we could, as a church, offer to the spiritual and not religious, is that it defies who we are as persons. It denies that we are souls with bodies, that we are corporeal beings. God, when he came into the world, did not come as an angel. No, he came into the world with flesh, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is perfectly God and perfectly man. And so in his infleshedness, or what we call the principle in the incarnation, we recognize that there is something important to the things we taste, we touch, we see, and we smell. Now, if we look at the Old Testament today, it also adds a little element of the philosophical we need to consider. When God is in the burning bush that seems to not expire, he also is speaking. Now, is the bush opening its mouth like some fiery contraption and breathing out smoke? I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, None of us were. But when our Lord was speaking to Moses, he asked him, Who are you? And what is your name? And God says something very important. He says, I am. It doesn't say, I'm the Father, or I'm the Creator, or I'm Zeus, or I am this or that. He says, I am, which is a metaphysical statement. It's a statement about existence and essence. It's a statement about being. I am is a verb. It's explaining both its essence as a noun and its action as a verb. Now, it seems a little too grammatical, but what it boils down to is this. If God is then we are also. If God is not, then we are not. We, 
don't have the ability to create ourselves. We don't have the ability to fashion the world in our image and likeness. It is only he who is. He who existed before time, before space, before all the material is. He is there. And so God lays a claim on all of creation as its maker. But also that he doesn't stop being present. Because I am indicates that he's still with us. And so God reveals himself, we see in the Old Testament, very often in physical ways. And at times, in the quiet silence. But very often, in a cloud, in fire. Think of Noah and the rainbow. Think of our Lord's presence in those ways. And then you look at the New Testament. Did Christ perform miracles of thought? Well, sure, he changed the course of people's thoughts. But Christ physically healed people. Christ physically touched people. Christ physically instituted the Eucharist. Christ physically instituted reconciliation by forgiving sins. Because God in his infinite wisdom knows us. He knows that our imaginations, dimmed by the fall, don't understand fully who he is. So out of mercy, in his, what we call the condescension, as he became man, He took on our flesh because he knew it was only in the flesh that we would truly believe, that we would have that confirmation that we need, that we can taste it, we can touch it, we can smell it, we can feel it. How do we know love is real? We touch it. We touch the person we love. We show them affection. And how does God show us his love? Through the sacraments. When people say, where is God? Point them right at the church. He's there. That burning bush that is the tabernacle. Is it melting? No. Is his beating heart still beating for you with love and charity? Absolutely. It beats for each and every one of us. And he comes to us not in some super miraculous form, but under the ordinary appearance of bread and wine. Out of mercy. Because he knows for us to truly eat flesh and truly drink blood would be something we could not handle. And so he, again, condescends. He comes to our level to meet us where we are at. It's why when somebody says, Father, can I just go to confession on the phone or can I just tell God my sins and say I'm sorry, you can do those things. You can't go to confession on the phone, FYI. (laughs) You can do those things, but you can't get absolution. God doesn't reach into your AT&T wireless network and say, I absolve you from your sins. And God can forgive your sins as you confess them on a daily basis to him in the privacy of your prayers. But he instituted a sacrament, a way, a physical way, in which you will know that you are forgiven through the ministry of the church and the person of the priest acting in the person of Christ. That as the priest raises his right hand to absolve you of your sins, you physically, you hear, you might see, depending on how you go to confession, And you experience the words of consolation. This is how God reveals himself to us. Not in some mysterious way that we can't see, but in a mysterious way that's right in front of our eyes. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we need to not so much look to the skies for the miracle of God's coming, but look to the tabernacle. To look at the host as you approach it in communion. To look at your spouse who is part of your sacramental bond. Who is the stuff, the physical part of matrimony is two people. 
It's not the priest, not the deacon. It's the two people who unite themselves in the confirmation when we anoint with oil. These are all ways that are real in which God reveals his continued presence among us and calls us, as the gospel reminds us, to conversion. So to finish just briefly, to look at that gospel, our Lord talks about the fig tree, which until last year I knew nothing about, but we have a fig tree in our backyard that people steal from all the time, so I've learned a lot about fig trees. But a fig tree unto itself, there's nothing terribly remarkable about it. It produces a nice-tasting fruit sometimes. But in the, the parable, the, the Lord's trying to emphasize it's not the tree that we need to be paying attention to. It's the soil. It's that physical stuff that actually helps the tree grow that we need to be paying attention to. And much like the stuff we can't see, but which makes a big difference in the life of that tree, you can't see your soul, right? You can't touch it. You can't say it's here, it's there. There is some scientific evidence after death, some, I'm not saying it's the absolute truth, that bodies weigh a, a, a small amount less after death. And they say that's the soul leaving the body. Who knows? But the soul is not a physical thing. But it is in our flesh what animates us. And the soul is something that has to be worked on and tilled and cultivated like soil to bear good fruit. And the waters of our Lord's tears, the waters that poured forth from his side, that's what's healing our soul and helping it to be fertile. That's what comes to us in the sacrament of confession. As the Lord's tears of mercy pour upon us in forgiving our sins, that's what comes to us when we consume his flesh and his blood in the Eucharist, is the Lord forming our souls to be like him, to be children who, as Genesis reminds us, are created in his image and likeness. And so, yes, we need to conscientiously object to those who say, I'm spiritual but not religious. Why? Because their souls are worth fighting for. And if we can explain to them the incredible dignity they have in their person, body and soul, we can begin to move the conversation in a direction where they understand that religious life, living in the life of God, is what he intended. It's what he desires to encounter him through the physical, to encounter him as spiritual beings with bodies, to encounter his love in a physical way. Dear brothers and sisters, let us Begin. If we've failed in our Lenten penances, if we've certainly not been to confession in a long while, let us begin again. Avail yourselves of that mercy of God in the confessional. Avail yourselves of the mercy of God in the Eucharist. But never tire in coming back to Him so that He can make your soil fertile and He can make you clean.